and welcome to another episode of Brocephus and Friends. I'm your host, Brocephus, and this week I'm so excited to have um, Jake Patty. Jake, thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, of course, Joseph. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> when I say thank, th- uh, thank you for being here, thank you for having me at your house. <laughs> uh, and and for those who are hearing that noise, we are out on. This is a beautiful day. Yeah. Beautiful day. Yeah. Um, I first. I was trying to think. I. When was the first time I met you? But when first time I remember seeing you around CSF. Yeah. Freshman year, some. But there's a. But one time I remember specifically. Um, not meeting you, but remember I remember knowing who Jake Patty, the Jake Patty was, was <laughs> when it was. In April, whenever it was during COVID, when the world shut down, and we had shift show, and um, and during for those who don't know what shift show is, um, it's an award show for freshmen, where people showcase talent and do different things, and and they give awards for every thing of like there's a singing category, there's a dance whatever there's a lot of categories and so it was during COVID and they said so thank you all for coming to this show and being a part of this freshman year we want to end this show with one award and we're called I don't remember what they call it I think they call it the Jake Patty Award but they said we're going to have someone Jake Patty and he's going to end it and I said oh and you were good you had you played your guitar do you remember that uh Maybe very vaguely. I don't know. I, the thing is, I I remember shift show. I don't remember the specific like events that transpired at shift show that year. Uh, but was that whenever I had Kurt Vernon with me? Did I I'm have Kurt sure. there for that? I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. But for those who are wondering, who in the world is Jake Patty? Tell <laughs> us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do and and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, uh, I guess currently uh, I'm a recent college grad. I just graduated with a degree in chemical engineering. And uh, I'm honestly not up to too much right at this moment, but uh, I play bluegrass music. I've been doing that for a few years, and I really like to read. So I read a lot about church history and theology and uh, yeah I don't know I mean that's really the main things that I think that I'm into Uh, oh I guess maybe I will be working in the bourbon industry uh, starting June 12th I'll be working at the Barton Distillery doing engineering work for uh, for bourbon production (laughs) but yeah, I guess that's you know maybe some of the bases to cover. Yeah, but yeah. Remember the I remember the first time we talked, and we have something in common. <laughs> um, we both really respected, admire, um, at least I think we do. Um, Mac Wise. Yeah. First time yeah. I remember meeting you, I remember th- you said, and I said, Mac, because. There's not very many what I consider now stylist 
yeah. in in music. You either have yeah. singer songwriters, but but Mac was a stylist of music. Could sing any type of music. Oh yeah. yeah. So what was your lead into? You talk about bluegrass. What was your lead into bluegrass music? Yeah. So uh, I remember being a little kid, and uh, as a as a kid. My family had this suburban with, you know, like a, you know, fold-down TV screen in it. And uh, on all the road trips we went on, you know, I'd watch, like, The Lion King or whatever. But at some point, my parents got this DVD set of the Beverly Hillbillies. And, you know, then I would watch the Beverly Hillbillies, and I, I think somehow listening to that theme music with the banjo in it and everything kind of got into me and didn't ever completely get out. And so I think whenever I was exposed to that stuff again, whenever I was around like 12, 13 years old, and I realized that it was possible for me to play that music, Hmm. that was kind of what happened. So I think it was really just exposure to that music through the Beverly Hillbillies mainly, but then also probably just like... You know, the fact that my family is all country people from Missouri and Arkansas. Um, <laughs> it was always kind of present. Um, but nobody really played music in my family. So it took being at this country music theater in Marshall County, Kentucky, and uh, seeing some teenagers playing bluegrass music for basically. I think that desire to reawaken in me. And then I was like, wait, this is what I want to do. I want to play that music. Mm. And I really realized how much I liked fiddles and banjos, and I still really like fiddles and banjos, (laughs) and, you know, some other things now as well. But, yeah, so. I really spent, you know, the, the majority of my middle school and high school years, um, you know, learning, trying to figure out how to play music like that. Um, pretty much stopped watching television by the time I was in eighth grade. Um, just because I would rather sit on my bed and try and figure out how to play stuff on the guitar. And that was just what I did nonstop for all of those years. And I guess that's a good thing because I'm pretty literate with the guitar now, but it's, (laughs) it's definitely interesting to think about, you know, being, you know, a teenager and that's what I was up to, but. (laughs) Yeah. Who, who is your, now, I would, Mount Rushmore's four, but I, I can, I'll, if you want five, uh, game five, (laughs) who is your Mount Rushmore of music? Of music in general, or of... It's just take it wherever oh, man. you want to. Okay, well, I think if I was going to do an entire, like, just a Mount Rushmore of music that I love, personally... Yeah. Um, oh, this is difficult. Okay, so, I think that this sounds like a weird option, because I've just talked about bluegrass music for the last, you know five, ten minutes, but I think that the first person would probably be Louis Armstrong. (laughs) Uh, 
And, you know, if you've ever listened to Louis' early recordings and stuff from the 30s and 40s, you know that Louis was, you know, definitely a one-of-a-kind type of talent, type of musician. Um, so I guess probably number one would be Louis. And then number two, I think, would be Bill Monroe. I think number three would be George Jones. And then number four... To keep it varied, I think I'd say Jim Croce. Just because that, you know, adds some variability, some stuff that's a little bit different. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that would probably be... And if I added a fifth, it would be hard for it to not be Tony Rice, who is a great bluegrass and uh, new acoustic uh, singer and guitar player. But, yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned George Jones and all those country guys. You know, I think what made them so special is, in bluegrass too, is that they... They had the perspective of both. There was, in the, I would say, probably 50s, 60s, and 70s, mm-hmm. there was not a country artist that didn't do a gospel album oh, yeah. at some point in their career because it, it's just all connected together. Yeah. And so theology... Uh, and well, The fact of the matter is all those guys, like all the... You know, all the great country singers, for the most part, there's a few exceptions, but most of them, you know, they grew up and they learned how to sing in church. And I think that's significant. Uh, like George Jones, for instance, like, he learned, if I'm not mistaken, he learned his first guitar chords either from his mother or his grandmother, and he grew up singing in church. And then, like, the Leuven brothers were the same way. They grew up singing in church. Uh, Monroe grew up uh, singing in church. Like it, it all kind of goes back to that for a lot of those artists, I think. And I think that's important. And a thing that you know, people don't think about a whole lot with musicians. But you know, I think it probably has less to do with music and musicians than it has to do with like our overall like cultural moment right now. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know... For those who don't know you well, or don't know you at all, really, I'd say, because if you had a conversation with Jake Patton, theology would be in there at some point. Where did you get your hungerness, if that's a word, <laughs> yeah. for deep the, just learning, just just learning about theology? Where did you get that from? Yeah. Um. Well, I think the biggest thing, I think the the thing that's most significant and, like, helps out the most in understanding that is that I grew up in uh, a group. They wouldn't call themselves a denomination, but they are a denomination. Um, The Churches of Christ. And they're very sectarian, so they're uh, they're pretty um, secluded. And it's kind of... It's difficult to 
even try to explain, but basically it's a very conservative group and it's a group that believes that they're right and everyone else is wrong. Uh, and, you know, whenever it comes down to it, I got to a place where I was a teenager where I couldn't believe that this group was right and everyone else was wrong because the fruits that this group bears are not necessarily fitting with what you can see in scripture with what you know the character that Jesus and also the the character that Paul writes about like you, you don't see the fruits of this particular group super well I don't think um, at least in many cases and the, probably the biggest thing was just they uh, they believed themselves to be the one true church from the book of Acts so uh, I got to a place where I was a teenager and I realized that this group couldn't possibly be the one true church from the book of Acts because they began in 1801. <laughs> that was when they broke off from the Presbyterians. And, uh, you know, how in the world are you going to be the one true church from the book of Acts if you don't get started until right. 1801? Yeah. Um, you know, nearly 2,000 years after Jesus. And so... From there, I started trying to understand church history, but it's impossible to understand church history if you don't know where you're starting or where you're going or anything like that. Uh, and so I kind of went down that rabbit hole and ended up learning about a lot of different groups because, honestly, I just kind of became more open-minded about um, different Christian groups. I, you know, try to just hear people out and understand what the beliefs were. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I agree, sometimes I disagree. But ultimately, I uh, I made friends with people who I really didn't agree with. And it started with me wondering about Calvinism. <laughs> At least, you know, the doctrine of election. Like, does God choose who's going to be saved and who's going to hell? And is that okay if he does? And what are the implications of that? And uh, I've never really come out to a clear conclusion on Calvinism. I think it's not really a, a, a good <laughs> first thing to start with. But I don't know. It was kind of a gateway into understanding different uh, churches and different thinkers who came out of the Protestant Reformation and then I started to look at the Roman church and the Catholics that they were um, protesting and tried to understand that perspective. And then eventually I learned about Eastern Orthodoxy and tried to uh, understand what made them different from Roman Catholics because, you know, they, they seem really similar, but they're really not super similar. And just the way that theology was preserved and presented in the Eastern church was pretty dramatically different from any of the Western church, including Catholicism and any of the Protestant churches. Uh, so, I don't know. It's uh, it's hard to really narrow that down, but I think I really got into theology because of church history, is all that to say. It's, it's, uh, it's been uh, an interesting time learning about all that. Honestly, though, you get to a certain point with all of it where it's like, man, it's good to know what everybody thinks and why, but 
you know, there's also a, a point of like devotional theology of like, how does this help me to love Jesus more? Yes. And uh, that's kind of been more of my focus recently. And uh, so I've been reading people like Henry Nowen, uh, Jacques Philippe, uh, you know, writers who really write pastorally and they write to, you know, help Christians understand who they are and who God is specifically as a father. Uh, and I think that that's always going to be one of the most foundational things that you can understand uh, as a Christian. And, uh, I don't know, there's there's a quote by Henry Nowen somewhere that I think is really important for this kind of thing that basically says that the original meaning of theology was union, union with God in prayer. And I think that, you know, theology at its best is union with God in prayer. And at its worst, it's arguing with a bunch of people on the internet because they don't have the exact same view of X, Y, or Z issue as you. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Billy Graham uh, a while ago. The organization, Graham organization, mm-hmm. crusade organization, starts with prayer when the crusade was going on prayer after the crusade prayer yeah. prayer I think is one of the uh, you mentioned prayer and I think that's I think that's a good topic to, to dwell on a little bit here because even just in my life in the last year, year school year yeah being on prayer team, yeah. going and interceding, there is nothing like being in a room with people and praying and interceding for people, because um, there is just there is a certain spirit when you pray for something, and you know that 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 the Lord is there moving in hearts and mm-hmm. and. And being faithful to the call because I remember one time, um, someone I was somewhere and someone said, "Can I pray for you?" You know, and and I was somewhere and I prayed for someone else. That is that is such a, I think it is a hard thing to do, but it is a wonderful thing when we can get together and we and we can know that the Lord is saying, "Hey, enter, pray for that person." How have you? Was that something? Because I know one time you you just came up and said, "Hey, can I can I pray for you?" Was that something that you had to learn, or was that something that just comes natural to you? Well, I think that that's. I mean, it's both. The thing is, I feel like sometimes I feel that I get a prompting that I should pray for someone, or uh, sometimes I get like several things kind of like that happening uh, like you know in a short time span but then sometimes I don't feel anything specific like that for you know several months and 
you know, I'm kind of in a place right now where I haven't felt anything specific like that in a little while. So I think a lot of it's kind of just listening and trying to understand what the will of the Father is. Uh, but ultimately, you know, there are times where, it, you know, it doesn't matter how much you listen, it, it'll seem that God is silent. And that's where I think you just have to be faithful anyway. And so, you know, in a time like right now, I haven't had any promptings that I, like, like what the occasion that you were talking about, I feel like I haven't had any promptings where I feel like I need to go, like, pray for this person and, like, ask if I can pray for them right now. I've not experienced that in a little while. Uh, but that's okay. You know, I think the whole thing is that once you start to put pressure on something like that, then you're probably over-spiritualizing it. You're probably over-spiritualizing things. And I think that's worse than just being obedient and, you know, interceding, uh, asking your father in secret. Because I think, you know, like the whole thing of, you know, whenever you have promptings and things like that, I don't think that God just like randomly starts to talk to someone. I think that, you know, everyone's relationship with God, it has to be cultivated in secret. And that's kind of what Jesus talks about um, whenever he says, you know, pray to your father who's in secret, he'll reward you in secret. Um, and so I, I think that that's massively important. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that in general, the cultivation and the like, you know, like what you're saying, like the learning of something like that is honestly just focused in being obedient wherever you are and just praying in secret. And then, you know, maybe you get to a place where at some point you think that the Lord wants to use you to speak some sort of word of encouragement to someone or to pray for someone with them, uh, to intercede with them. But it's not always going to be like that. And, you know, I think the majority of prayer should probably look more like, um, you know, going in and hiding more so than, uh, you know, being on like a town square or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, could not talk about uh, prayer without talking about Reese Matthews and <laughs> and talking about and he said he said this one time and I yeah. love it so much about talking about prayer and being silent in prayer, letting God talk to you. Speak into that. What does that mean to you? Yeah. So. Uh... I think that silence, well, I mean, you have silence, but, you know, it's also significant to think about stillness. Um, and so I think that, you know, whenever I have times where I feel like I need to be silent in prayer, I feel like it's not just that I need to, like, not talk. Um, and I can go about and do other things. Like, I think that it's almost like, there's sometimes when I feel that I need to completely just stop and just rest and not just like rest and like go take a nap or something, but like, yeah. you know, um, Joseph, you've seen my room. I think it's uh it's got this big red rug in the floor 
And so there's times where like I feel like I just need to like stop and just like sit and be with God for some period of time. And so what I'll do is I'll just sit down, you know, crisscross applesauce on the rug and just breathe and, you know, be silent, be still. And uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think that the Lord moves through that time um, powerfully. And I don't always understand it. Like, I, I had uh, some time like that on oh when was that yeah I had some time a few days ago where I felt that I needed to just stop and just be with God and just be present and I don't know I think it's one of those things where I'm not always going to understand it well but I think that, again, just the obedience and the faith in those times is what's more important uh, than the understanding. But, yeah, also, like, just in general with silence and prayer, um, I think that it's really hard to be truly silent. And so something else that helps is... Uh, you know, having, like, a guide word or a guide phrase mm. that, like, you want to, like, sink into your heart. And so, uh, you know, I think, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Lectio Divina, mm-hmm. uh, but just, you know, reading one passage over and over yeah. and letting it sink in, and, you know, it, it's helpful whenever you realize that the point of memorizing scripture isn't so you can have scripture memorized. The point of having, the point of memorizing scripture is for devotion. Yes. Um, and so, yes. so like yesterday, uh, I started to think about Psalm 32 and just like, you know, I tried to just sit with the first three verses for a little while. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I think that, like, especially that passage, that's one of the best ones, like, the, the first few verses, because um, I just sat with them, but, you know, blessed is the one whose unrighteousness is forgiven. Blessed is him. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Blessed is he to whom the Lord imputes no sin, and in whose spirit there is no guile. For while I held my breath, my bones wasted away. I groaned all the day long. I I just I don't know, there's something about that that's just like, you know, the opening is just No no, I just sat with that for some time and just I don't know, it's it's so good to just understand that like despite my failings, despite whatever things I do that are awful and horrendous in the sight of God that I can be blessed because my sin is forgiven. Mm. That I can be blessed because my unrighteousness isn't on me anymore. Uh, and then verse three, with the you know, while I held my breath, 
or while I held my tongue, while I held my breath, you know, I think what that's getting at is like, you know, if you keep those things bottled up inside of you, then they don't go anywhere and you end up just, you know, feeling awful. But you have to understand the first truth, which is that if you confess your sins and if you're restored, uh, then, you know, you're going to feel a lot better. <laughs> and, you know, just from experience, I know that's true. Like, so right now we're sitting on my porch looking down Rose Lane um, and you know there's been so many nights where I've sat in these chairs with Austin and we've done accountability and confessed sins to one another and it's been restored and that's honestly one of you know the best pictures of the gospel is just you know confessing the things that you've done and being restored and then you know, extending grace to those who are around you. Yeah. I think that, yeah. 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 That's so good. Zach Ball, and that here I go name dropping, but <laughs> Zach Ball, when we yeah. when we did accountability, was stupid. But he always quotes that that verse Romans eight one. Now there is no condemnation, and you know. And I want to backtrack just a little yeah. bit what you said about about verses and and not just remembering just for just for sake of knowing. Oh, I know the whole Bible, yeah. but I think it's the same way we always talk about. People always say, you know, oh, I just don't know about talking about children. About you know, we want to we want to have it a little bit less for them because they don't know much. Or their their category their vocabulary and stuff is not yeah. what it, like me and you are adults. Yeah. But I think it is very important, and this goes for adults too, to to remember and to learn the Bible, learn Scripture, learn songs, yeah. because in tough times, yeah. if you do not have that, I mean I remember a couple. Last week or so, I was going through a rough time, and I was just sitting in bed laying there, and I thought, and just verse, you know, just having verses and, you know, like hymns and things, learning things for when tough times happen. Yeah. Because if it's not, if you don't learn it when times are good, it will not be there to yeah. serve you when times are bad. No, and that's one of the things, like, I mean, so, uh, you know, what I've ultimately come to is I don't agree with all the doctrines, the dogmas that the Churches of Christ teach necessarily. But when it comes down to it, I'm still glad that I grew up in that tradition. And the main reason why is because they don't use instruments. And most of what they sing in worship is just a cappella hymns. And so the tough times that I've had in my life what I ultimately end up resting in and um, and what I ultimately fall back on are the hymns more than anything uh, because you know honestly that's where I feel like most of the good theology I knew came from for the first 18 years of my life and uh, 
I don't know, I feel like that's massively important, you know, to understand, you know, especially if you take a song like uh, It Is Well With My Soul, you know, like When Sorrows Like Sea Billows Roll, you know, that, that song was written by a guy whose wife and children had died on a transatlantic journey and here he is writing it is well it is well with my soul you know I mean yeah I don't know if we always understand what it means the peace of the Lord surpasses understanding but I think that that's a a good place to start in trying to understand that yeah Um, peace I think we say peace a lot of like oh I had peace, peace like river, but peace, peace is not a, peace is not, peace is a powerful word. Yeah. Peace is a, I, I think we, we really say, peace is a, is not a playful word. Peace is to think that God, that Jesus told the storm, peace be still. That yeah. is not a word that we should take lightly. Yeah. And when we have peace, we have, we have. We have serenity. We are in the rest of the Lord, and that is something that I that not to take lightly. Yeah, I'm preaching way too much, and I wouldn't oh, no, talk. No. But but I I I really believe that when you said yeah. that the peace, you know, peace be still. Sorry. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing is, like, the word that we translate as peace um, in our Bibles, you know. In the Old Testament, then, I mean, I think you can also make an argument for the New Testament as well. Whenever you hear the Old Testament writers, uh, or the Lord himself, or Paul, or anyone in the Bible talking about peace, what you're actually getting is this word that means a lot more than what we mean by peace. Because whenever we think of peace, I feel like, you know, you hear the, the thing that's like, you know, darkness is the absence of light. Well, that's like, you know, it's a negative description of darkness. I feel like a lot of the times whenever we think about peace, we don't think about it as a positive description. We think about it as, as a negative description. So I think right now we think about peace as just being the absence of war or the absence of conflict. But, you know, the, the word shalom in Hebrew is a lot more encompassing than that. It means like peace as in like flourishing mm. as in um, you know rest, revitalization um, life it's, it's all of those things and I think that that makes a lot more sense uh, because well, what does God want for people what, what God wants for humanity is not just the absence of conflict or the absence of war but what he wants really is um, flourishing and life and life abundantly and I think that once that is you know brought into the picture the word peace regains the meaning that it's kind of lost it's whenever you think about it in terms of shalom that's good. You know, 
bring this on a little bit of a lighter tone right now. <laughs> you, um, you recently, I don't know how recent, but you have watched um, Wes Anderson. Oh man, yeah. Talk yeah. A, talk about what what draws because I just I had just watched um, the camp camp one. Midrose Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that that one's my favorite. Um, But what draws you to Wes Anderson as a director and his movies? Yeah. Um, I think in general, I kind of. Well, I think number one is just purely aesthetic. I think that his movies are beautiful. Like I think that they just you know, there's a lot of colors going on a lot of the time uh lots of the color yellow which you know that's kind of the famous Wes Anderson thing is that it's all yellow but you know honestly I think that it's the combination of the aesthetic of those movies um just being uh I don't even know how to describe it but it's just like kind of like pop art but in like you know real life people playing all the characters um which I guess except for the cartoons because I guess the the stop motion ones so Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox they actually are kind of just pop art um but everything kind of has that quality where even the movies that have people you know playing the actors or you have actors that are playing you know real people um and it's not a cartoon, it's not a stop motion. Even when that's happening, it still feels kind of like a cartoon. It feels like a fantastical experience, a fantastical world. And so I guess it's the combination of the aesthetic and then also just kind of that it is just silly feeling a lot of the time. Like, nothing seems too serious in a Wes Anderson film. Mm. Even if someone is, like, literally dying... It still seems somehow lighthearted a good bit of the time, and I think that that is actually a good thing. <laughs> Some of the time, I think it, it, it kind of goes to like if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh-uh. So, like, whenever you're reading the Chronicles of Narnia, it kind of feels similar to how it feels when you're watching Wes Anderson movies to me, because you're in this world and everything. Like, something very serious can be going on. Like, say you're in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the army of the children is fighting the army of the White Witch. And, like, people are getting injured, all this bad stuff is happening. But still, Lewis just makes it very lighthearted, and nothing Mm -hmm. seems extremely serious. Um, Nothing seems, you know, like, legitimately sad. Yeah. And I think that there's a place for stuff where, like, sadness is mocked. Or not mocked, but, like, I don't know, it's put to shame by joy. I think that that's the way that I would say it, is that there there should be a place where, like, sadness, shame, um, sorrow are swallowed up by joy and by glory. And, I don't know, I wouldn't say that you know, that's necessarily what's happening in Wes Anderson, but I think it's something similar to that yeah. in those films hmm. where, um, like in Moonrise Kingdom, you know, you obviously have, like, 
it's Sam and Susie, right? Like, that's the kids. Yeah. And they're obviously, like, you know, Sam is, like, an orphan and has been in the foster system and, like, you know, just has not had a good life as an orphan. Um, but ultimately, like, that whole movie is kind of escapism. Like, he's, he's escaping from that life. And ultimately, he ends up fully escaping from it whenever he's adopted by the policeman. You know, and I feel like that's, like... I don't know. It, I guess that's the other thing. The Wes Anderson movies, they always end in a way that is overwhelmingly positive mm. rather than negative. There's never... Yeah. They're always comedies and never tragedies. And I think that that also is probably some of the draw. Mm. But, yeah, I don't know. Pretty Colors. Yeah. They're happy movies. They're funny. I love them. <laughs> you know, you're talking about um, grief and and tears and, and sorrow being swallowed up in joy. You know, I think one of the greatest songwriters of all time is Hank Williams because he wrote I think one of the greatest saddest sad songs hear that lonesome whippoorwill he sounds too blue to fly I'm so lonesome I could cry but also he wrote um, praise the Lord I saw the light you know to have that both the I am so lonesome, and as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I can cry. And I wondered in aimless and sin, but praise the Lord, I saw the light. Yeah. Wow. Two yeah. different things, but to know that the same man who was dealing with sorrow knew yeah. that praise the Lord, I saw the light. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, the thing is, I think all good media today kind of holds those things balanced well. I think all good artists, all good books, movies, all those things, you know, they're honest about grief, they're honest about pain, but they're also honest about the fact that, you know, grief is swallowed up by joy. And, you know, all truth is God's truth, right? So I think that you can also see that in Scripture extremely well. Like, most of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. Um, But still, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul, worship His, like, bless His holy name, you know, and like, you know, it's also Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of joy. Um, And honestly, all of Scripture, I think you can view that way, where you're holding the opposition of the, the fact that something is wrong with the world with the fact that God is going to put it right and that God has already begun to put it right. You know, for us now, things are already put right. We just can't see it. And, uh, you know, someday we'll see it. And, you know, that's where Revelation um, 21, 22, you know, those are honestly maybe my favorite chapters in in the Bible because it's the fulfillment, the consummation of what we're looking for. It's our hope where, you know, God will make all things new, where he'll wipe every tear from our eyes, and where, you know, ultimately, God will dwell with his people. And, you know, you best believe that sorrow will be swallowed up by joy then. Yeah, 
Yes. That's that's the hope. Yeah. The certain hope. Reese, this is now this is this is not a Joseph question. I'll I'll give Reese all the credit for this question. Oh boy. Um but and I and I guess you could take it we could you could take it many ways. Um and you have the liberty to so but he he asked this question this way so I'll ask it but feel free to make it broadly what is your um, view on um, I'll just make it broadly worship culture worship culture yeah interesting yeah he he he's, he brought it to the idea and I guess I'll bring it to you in this way yeah. too yeah what is your view on worship culture at CSF yeah but feel free to broaden it broaden out. it or shorten it or you know yeah it's, it's your question well so first of all I think that God is good and he can work through whatever means he chooses to right um but I also think that you know if I'm pursuing truth and grace, then part of what truth and grace are is beauty. Uh, and so I think that's part of why, whenever we were just talking about the Wes Anderson films, that's part of what makes them so attractive is that they're beautiful. And something in the beauty displays grace and truth, even if there's like stuff that's not super great going on in the movies sometimes, which does happen with the Wes Anderson movies. Um, but all that to say, you know, honestly, I like don't listen to worship music, like contemporary Christian music in my free time at all. Like I just, I don't do that. I lead worship music sometimes. And like, you know, if I hear a song that I think resonates well, then like I'll add it to the repertoire and I'll start, you know doing that one sometimes whenever I'm leading worship. But a good bit of the time, like, you know, I don't really listen to Hillsong or Elevation or Bethel or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I think part of that is just that, you know, I grew up, like I said, in a context where it was all hymns and it was all acapella. And so, you know, my first year of college... I think I went to one synergy and then I didn't go back at all because like I couldn't do the big band and you know the the dark and all the stuff and it just wasn't for me and you know that, that seems weird because like I lead at synergy a lot right now and like I like I help out with all that kind of stuff but I don't know it's it's weird because on one hand like I feel like I'm so deeply entrenched into that sort of worship culture but also I think that the concept of worship culture isn't a thing really like people talk about like wanting worship culture at their church wanting worship culture at a campus ministry and I guess that's good but I, my question then would be you know if, if that type of worship culture has only existed for the last 30 years or you know probably less than that probably like the last 10 years in a lot of places then what were people doing before that and that's always my thing it's just like well why do we think this is how this needs to be 
whatever. Car made an interesting noise. Why do we think this is the way this needs to be whenever there's been Christians for, you know, 2,000 years in different places who have been faithfully nurtured by something that we might see as boring now? Um, and I think this goes back to beauty and truth because, you know, most of Christian history, people would just sing stuff from scripture and they didn't have you know big bands with electric guitars you know I mean like it's kind of funny I always I led worship at my church this past week um, and one of our pastors was worried about uh, not having sound because the normal people were out and I just said you know like even if we don't have sound, you know, they didn't, they didn't have electricity for the first, you know, first 1900 years of Christian faith. And they seem to have done pretty, pretty well without it. (laughs) And I don't know, it's just one of those things. I think that like we get so wrapped up in our context that, you know, we don't, we overthink what we need to have. Because the only thing that we need to have is a contract heart to God and to be open to what the scriptures are teaching us. And, uh, I don't know. You can do with that what you want, but I guess to answer the question, I'm not the biggest fan of, like, the style of worship, even around at CSF, but that's the community that I'm in. It's the context that I'm in. And I'm going to be faithful to God in it. Now, Whenever I'm left to my own devices, like, I don't know, I, uh, I'm going to end up wanting to sing more hymns if I'm in charge of music somewhere or at some point. Um, and not just, like, you know, American hymns, but, you know, English hymns and, you know, songs that are, you know, two, three hundred years old. Uh, because I think that they've just nurtured Christians well for a long time. And I think that they'll continue to nurture us well. Yeah. And there's something about, you know, the fact that ancient Christian tradition and then, you know, even less ancient Christian tradition, like the hymns, these things have stood the test of time. Yeah. And they've helped people. They've nurtured people. And, you know, like I was saying with grief and sorrow earlier, you know, I think that the hymns really nurtured me as a child so that the times that I've gone through that have been hard have been really hard you know what I ultimately fall back on is the truth of the hymns you know yeah. what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear it's a uh, I don't know I think there's something about that yeah and the good ones will survive not the good ones will survive because yeah. Fanny Crosby wrote 5,000 songs you sing, you sing five that we sing, and it will stretch you. Pass me not promptly, blessed assurance. Yeah. But other and that that would be stretching for those. For, but yeah. the good ones have survived, and they will continue to yeah, survive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Jake, thank you so much for this time. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely, Joseph. Thank you. Yes.